If you're new with us, we are uh, working verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, and uh, this is Sermon 4 uh, in our series, so welcome uh, to it as we uh, study uh, this great letter together. I'm happy to report that on Friday night that the students found Pastor Tony's sermon notes, and so uh, I'm prepared today. However, they said it was a mediocre sermon at best, uh, so um, we're going to pray, ask for the Lord to, uh, to help us as we study it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for another opportunity to open your word. We pray you now open up our minds and our hearts to receive your word. For we study your word not to have a head full of facts, but a heart filled with worship. Lead us to that great end, we pray, as we study together in Jesus' good name. Amen. In a contemporary culture, it's very common to hear someone refer to themselves as spiritual but not religious. You've probably heard that before. And they mean something along these lines, that I'm spiritually open I know there's more to life than the physical world, but I'm not into organized religion. I'm doing my own thing. I'm on my own spiritual path. It's present among pop stars. Justin Timberlake said, I think the term for me would be spiritual, more spiritual than religious. Or Beyonce, who said, I am about faith and spirituality more so than religion. Or Pink, who said, I am a very spiritual person. It's the baby blanket of my life but I don't believe in organized religion. Of course, you don't have to listen to pop stars to hear that. You can just talk to people in your own neighborhood. But based upon the text that we're looking at this morning, Paul would say, actually, you are religious, but not spiritual. Because if you don't have the Spirit of God, you are not spiritual. Not in a 1 Corinthians 2 sense. The category for you, based upon this text, is natural, not spiritual. You might be going through some religious motions. You might be participating in some superstitious acts, but you have no way of knowing divine truth apart from the Spirit of God. And we say that not to feel superior to those who make those claims, but we should actually hear those claims and be moved to prayer for those who say those kinds of things, that they would actually come to know Jesus and know true spirituality. And this text that we're looking at, it does indeed say something very vitally important to those who uh, are interested in what it means to be truly spiritual. But it's not actually written to unbelievers, it's written to the church, to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was facing the pressure to redefine what it means to be spiritual and wise. And Paul has to keep bringing them back to the gospel. He has to keep bringing them back to Christ crucified. That you don't start there, but then go somewhere else. But you actually go deeper into the gospel. He's saying to them over and over in various ways, don't capitulate to the wisdom of the age, but stay focused on Jesus. True spirituality, that's a dominant theme in this letter. What does it mean to be truly spiritual? Paul says here, is tied to the cross of Christ. To be truly spiritual is not to be mystical, it's to be Christological. To be spiritual in this text means to enjoy the gift of the Spirit who enables us to understand and believe the gospel. So look at those two themes before we walk through the verses, the cross and the Holy Spirit, kind of the dominant ideas here in the text. The first thing to think about with me is that this is a continuation of what Paul has been saying thus far in the letter. His argument began in chapter 1 verse 18 as he talked about the word of the cross being folly to some but to others being the power of God. He said in uh, verse 22 that we preach Christ crucified and that this is 
uh, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 2, as we looked at last week, right at the end, he said he resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that he did not come with plausible words of wisdom. So now, Paul is not moving on to a different subject. He's still on the same subject. In fact, he says in chapter 2, verse 8 in our text, he speaks of the rulers of this age who crucified the Lord of glory. So even though he's now talking about a lot of wisdom language, he's not talking about an esoteric, mystical wisdom. He's talking about the wisdom of the cross. He's still focused on what it means for Christ to be crucified and the implications of all that. And he's saying the gospel is not human wisdom. It's divine wisdom. So that's the one theme there, the cross. The other theme is the Holy Spirit. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, um, if you're not, then welcome. But if you are, you, you probably know that there are two chapters that receive a lot of attention regarding the, the work of the Spirit, chapter 12 and chapter 14. And those two chapters are mainly about the gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit it was, was something that was dividing the church in Corinth. But it might be surprising to you that the Spirit is mentioned more here than all of chapter 12 and twice as much as chapter 14. And Paul is not talking about the gifts of the Spirit here. He's talking about how the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts and minds to understand and believe the gospel. That's a very important, wonderful thing that the Holy Spirit does for us. He enables us to understand and believe. To understand in a saving way, not just in a merely intellectual way, but a way in which he overcomes our rebellion and our hostility. So you'll see words like revelation, knowledge, and discernment. The work of the Spirit giving us the ability to have understanding in a saving sense. On a purely intellectual level, a person could understand some of the concepts of the gospel. They might even be able to regurgitate certain aspects of what they have heard. But to acknowledge the truth of the gospel in the heart and to be transformed by it is beyond our fallen capacities. We need divine help for that to happen. One can be informed, but not illuminated. One can be informed, but not transformed. And Paul is saying, if that has happened to us, then we should praise God because the Spirit of God has done that in our hearts. We live in one of the most brilliant places in America. Brilliant people all around us. And history is filled with brilliant people. And man in its wisdom can put a man on the moon, if you believe that happened. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Bezos can fly to space in the morning, be back by lunch. We've created the printing press, smartphones, but one cannot understand and believe the gospel apart from the Spirit of God. You need the Spirit to know God in a saving way. We may live in the information age, but there is a kind of knowledge that you can't get on the internet. Saving knowledge that happens by the Spirit. So that's what this text is talking about. Let's look at it in three parts. Paul makes three contrasts. He talks about the wisdom of, the God, of God and the wisdom of the age. And then he talks about the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the world. And then about the spiritual person and the natural person. All right, so first, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the age. He's just talked about how the cross is the height of wisdom, and now he says more about that wisdom when he says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. So he's rejecting the wisdom of the age, but he's saying there is a wisdom that we do proclaim, but it's, it's, it's wildly different. It's about the wisdom of the cross. 
And we impart this, he says, to mature people. Now, there's a lot of debate about what Paul means by mature. When we hear that, we tend to think about the contrast between the immature and the mature Christian. But the context leads us to, to the conclusion that Paul is not talking about the mature like that. In this context, he's referring to all Christians being mature. They're synonymous with the wise in the text and the spiritual in the text. Those who love God are the mature. Now, in chapter 3, verse 1, he does make that distinction between the immature and the mature, calling some in Corinth infants. But as Morris says, this is not his concern yet. And when he comes to it, he will criticize the infants for being deficient in love, not knowledge. The focus here is knowledge. So there in chapter 3, verse 1, he makes a, a distinction between identity and behavior. Basically to say, you have a mature status, but you're behaving like babies. Now, I think the reason Paul uses the word mature in this passage is because of the Corinthian situation. A lot of people in Corinth love to talk about uh, being mature. And the church wanted to divide people up between the super spiritual and the less spiritual. Even the orators of Corinth loved to use this word to talk about themselves as the mature. And then there were the mystery religions that you could be initiated into and you could have these deeper uh, secret teachings, deeper secret teachings of the cult and be considered in the mature class. Paul is combating all of that to basically say there are no elite Christians. Of course, there is growth in Christ's likeness, but that's not the point here. You are the mature if you see the cross rightly. The wisdom of the age does not see the cross rightly. The wisdom of this age sees it as folly. The wisdom of this age is taught by, as he says, the rulers of this age. In the next verse, uh, this refers to the political and religious leaders who had Jesus crucified. Generally speaking, it refers to the, the general wisdom of the age that is being espoused. And in every age, there's all kinds of uh, wisdom that is being espoused, but that is not our message. We have the wisdom of the cross that we proclaim. You see, the wisdom of the age is changeable. The wisdom of God is timeless. You just take the popular notion of the good life, that changes generation to generation. From one uh, country to another country, they have a different version of what the good life actually is. But God's wisdom is timeless. It's mature. It's stable. I love how Peterson paraphrases these verses. He says, We, of course, have plenty of wisdom to pass on to you once you get your feet on firm spiritual ground, but it's not popular wisdom. The fashionable wisdom of high-priced experts that will be out of date in a year or so. We don't have an out-of-date gospel. We have a timeless gospel. And while listening to a TED Talk might be helpful, it does not compare to the word of the cross. The word of the cross is something altogether different, which is why we don't move on from this gospel, but we continue to cherish the old rugged cross. We never move on from it, but only into a more profound understanding and appreciation of it. Now, there are two aspects of this wisdom of God that Paul highlights here. He says, one, God has brought his saving plan to fruition in Christ, verses 7 and 8. He describes our message as secret and hidden wisdom that God decreed before the ages for our glory. Literally, wisdom in a mystery. This mystery of God's unfolding plan of redemption. This language is used elsewhere in the New Testament, this idea of God's unfolding drama of redemption is a, is a mystery. 
And it was a mystery because part of it had been veiled. There was unexpected aspects of it, like the Lord of glory being crucified. But that mystery is now revealed with the coming of Jesus Christ. And now we see the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus. That the sacrificial system points to the supreme sacrifice. That the high priest anticipates the great high priest. That the Passover lamb prepares us for the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so on. The whole, the whole thing now falls uh, together. Before then, Paul didn't read the Bible that way. But then when his eyes were transformed by Jesus on the Damascus Road and his heart was changed, he saw everything differently. But many things were veiled. In fact, some of the things had to be veiled because for God's plan to unfold, that involved wicked human beings affecting God's good purposes in the crucifixion. They didn't know what they were doing. That's what he says, right, in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. And just in passing, I love that he calls Jesus the Lord of glory. Psalm 24, who is this King of glory? Here's the answer. The Lord Jesus Christ. And the leaders in Jesus' day thought they were being shrewd in crucifying Jesus. <laughs> they actually were carrying out the good saving purposes of God. You see, at the cross, two wisdoms collided. Caesar's wisdom of military power and pride and Christ's wisdom of sacrifice and humility. And on Friday, it looked like the wisdom of Rome won. But on Sunday... Jesus stepped out into the sunlight as the vindicated, victorious Son of God. He was vindicated, and so was the wisdom of God. <laughs> this saving plan stretches back, all the way back, before creation. Peter says that in uh, his epistle when he says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, the cross was not a plan B. It was always plan A. It wasn't as if we didn't know what else to do. Everything had fallen apart, so go be crucified. That was the plan. And so let's not be swept away by modern fads. The wise plan of God is incomparable. Be amazed at the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the age can be helpful. Maybe teaching you how to change a tire, or how to pay your taxes, or how to get a profession. We can be thankful for all of those common graces but it cannot shed light on the kingdom of God. That's the wisdom of God. And all of this, he says, was for our glory, which is a wonderful idea. We share in the glory of Christ. We are united to the Lord of glory. And one day we will be glorified. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That in contrast to the rulers of this age, who their glory will fade, the believer will be glorified. We will be raised from the dead. This is a note of love, of tenderness, of God being concerned for our welfare, for our eternal salvation. And to highlight this amazing plan coming to fruition, Paul cites uh, a, a combination of uh, verses from Isaiah 64, 4, 65, 17, when he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We often cite this at funerals and uh, and rightly so, as we think about the future, as it's used that way in Scripture. Uh, but, and, and you know, the, the idea that we don't, we don't, we can't imagine how awesome heaven will be. We have a foretaste of it now. But it's kind of like going to Costco and you get a, you get a sample. 
and they're like, you can have a whole pallet to take home, you know. <laughs> um, we've got the pallet coming. Like the, the, the glory that we just have a foretaste now of glory. But Paul here, though, is not actually speaking of it in that way, though there is a, this future dimension that cannot be detached from our present salvation. He's talking about what is ours right now. That right now, we have been given the amazing privilege of benefiting from God's wise plan of salvation. And God has revealed this to us, to those, he says, who love him. It's a great description of a Christian. Those who love him. And we love because he has first loved us and done what we could not do for ourselves. So let us be grateful for the grace of God in the gospel Next thing he says is not only has he brought this plan to fruition in Christ, but it takes the work of the Spirit to believe. Notice he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. If we are mature enough to grasp the gospel, mature enough to believe, to be genuine Christians, it's not because of our superior intellect. It's not because of our superior morality or religiosity. It is because the Spirit of God has opened up our eyes to believe it. Now, the word revealed doesn't mean that the Spirit is working to reveal new Scripture. This is, what, of course, what the cults would say, that the Spirit revealed that I would be the leader of a new pumpkin cult, and you're supposed to believe that individual. That pumpkin cult already exists, I do believe, by the way. Uh, you see these pumpkins everywhere this time of year. Um, <laughs> but what the Spirit is doing in this revealing work is He's removing our opposition to the truth. He's opening up our minds to consider it rightly. And so if we're a Christian, we should be profoundly humble. Jesus died for us. He did what we couldn't do. And then the Spirit of God worked internally to transform us. Both acts, a historical objective act over 2,000 years ago with Christ dying and a personal inner act of the Spirit opening up our eyes to see a double grace which should lead to double praise. Amen? Secondly, the Spirit of God in the Spirit of the world. Here we see, again, Paul telling us that we need help in order, to, or, in order to understand divine truth. And you might ask, like, why do we need outside help? Isn't all knowledge knowledge? Jesus came to do something in history. Why do I need supernatural help to understand it and believe it? And as you read the Scriptures, it's quite clear that the distance between us and God is simply too great. Our self-centeredness is too deep. Our sin is too bad. It's our very lostness that requires the Spirit of God to intervene. And he talks in a very striking way here about how much we need the Spirit of God when he says, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. That is, the Spirit has access to all things. Nothing is beyond his knowledge. Even the things of God. No creature can comprehend the innermost thoughts of God. They're known only to the Spirit. Only God knows what God is thinking. And then he compares that to us. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? No, no matter how well you know a person, you cannot know all of their thoughts. I might have predicted Donnie would have said mashed potatoes, but... Um, that, that, we can have an educated guess maybe about what I'm thinking. Oh, he's thinking about sports. He's thinking about books. He's thinking about family. He's thinking about protein. What, it, what kind of protein is he going to have after the service? 
You don't know, though, what I'm thinking. And likewise, only God knows God's thoughts. So how are we going to understand God if we can't even understand another person? The distance is too massive. We need the Spirit of God to know God. That's what he's saying here. We cannot find him simply in our own power. But by the Spirit, we can know God. And he says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That we might understand these things freely given. That is the same message. The message of the cross, of the Messiah. The apostles has passed on down to us. What a glorious God to give us not only his son, but to give us his spirit to understand and believe. And Paul then says this about his message and ministry. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He's explaining spiritual truths, that is the gospel, in spiritual words, that is in words appropriate to the message. And he says the spirit of the world cannot make sense of this message. Now, before we move to the third contrast, just notice this is a great little job description and of, a, of a disciple maker and tells us what we might expect as we teach the Bible, spiritual truths to people, that he says our job is to take the word and to explain those truths with words that are fitting. Some people will be able to grasp what you're saying, but you also get a lot of blank stares from unspiritual people. They don't see the significance of what you're saying. They're indifferent to what you're saying or uninterested, again, because of the gap, because of their need for the Spirit of God. But when you're talking to some people with the, who, who are spiritual, who have the Spirit, they can discern things. They appreciate things. They appropriate things. And so Paul gives us that contrast as well. Thirdly, the natural person and the spiritual person. The natural person is the person without the Spirit, and the spiritual person is a person who has the Spirit. He says in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. It's not that they can't hear them, or even in some ways understand what you're saying. It's that they don't value them rightly. They don't appraise them rightly. It's folly to them, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So notice, regarding this natural person, they see and hear the gospel and regard it as folly. So Nietzsche famously rejected Christianity because he said it was a religion for the weak. Others have rejected it because they claimed it was barbaric. Gandhi said he could accept Jesus as a martyr and as a great teacher, but that there was nothing of miraculous virtue in his death. And you notice how Paul also just highlights this human inability. They cannot understand them. See that word cannot because they are spiritually discerned. He's, he's highlighting our human inability. Like due to our sin, we don't want to know God on his terms. That's how deep the self-centeredness is, the sin is. As one writer says, spiritually speaking, they're like the tone-deaf person unable to hear the beauty of the music of Mozart or the colorblind person who is unable to appreciate Monet's paintings. And if you can hear the beauty of the gospel this morning, praise God. If you see the beautiful colors of the gospel, praise God that he's opened up your eyes. John Piper says the basic problem is not an intellectual inability to construe the meaning of Paul's message, 
The problem is a moral inability to assign the right value to it. Then long before him, a second John, John Owen, first, second, third John, the hearts of men, he says, are fat, their ears heavy, their eyes sealed, that they can neither hear nor perceive nor understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. These things belong into the work of the Holy Spirit upon our minds. Which is why you can witness to a neighbor, give good literature to a neighbor, give a good argument to a neighbor, and we need to do these things more and more. But we need the Spirit of God to come and make it plain to our neighbor, to come and work in the hearts of our neighbor. And so when we're presenting the gospel, we do so prayerfully. It's not that we just need to have the right logical syllogism to give them in order to convince them on an intellectual level. Something deeper has to happen. In the words of Paul in the next chapter, only God can make the plant grow. And that's my story. That's your story. If you're a Christian, God did that for us by his amazing grace. I'd heard the gospel when I was a kid. I was taken to church a fair bit. Went to college, had no interest in the gospel, in the Bible. Went to several Bible studies. The Lord started working in my heart as a sophomore in college. Sat in a room at an FCA service. Heard a peer who was a soccer player share his testimony and share the gospel. And God opened up my heart and my eyes. And he saved me. He transformed me. Not because I fi finally heard the best argument. Not because it was a good sermon. Actually, I don't remember anything Matt said. <laughs> it's because the Spirit of God came and absolutely transformed my life. And we should pray with faith this morning that God would do that for our families and our friends and our neighbors. If He can do it for us, He can do it for them. Well, regarding verses 15 and 16, they're complicated. I'll skip them and go down to... No. <laughs> it's very edifying now. It's about to get dry. No, uh, this is actually wonderful. It, these, this is a, a very difficult passage, as you can see. That's how the kids improved my notes for me uh, to make it clear to you this morning. Uh, but 15, it says, The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. You can see how this verse could be really misapplied. Yeah, people would say, like, I have the Spirit of God now, and so I have infallible judgment on every issue under the sun. And you could also use it to, to argue that no one now can judge you. But notice, again, the spiritual person is not the elite among Christians, but is simply a Christian. And he's contrasting the spiritual person with the natural person. And so the, the point is, the spiritual person has the ability to make right judgments. It doesn't mean that we're now all-knowing all of a sudden, but it does mean that we have the Spirit of God guiding us, that we think differently. We've been transformed. We have a new mind, a new heart. We can make right judgments now. We can understand things in relation to the kingdom of God, whereas the natural person cannot assess spiritual things. You see, we've lived in both worlds as a Christian, the natural and the spiritual, whereas an unbeliever has only lived in this natural world. And so we're, we're going to see things differently. Carson says, The Christian has lived in both worlds and can speak of both worlds from experience, observation, and from a genuine grasp of the Word of God, but the person without the Spirit cannot properly assess what goes on in the spiritual realm. So we, we have a new sense of judgment. We have a new sense of the ability to make right decisions. 
And what about this phrase, not subject to any man's judgment? I take this in the sense of, of any natural person's judgment. Morris helps, he says, he, ha he has the Spirit of God within him, and the natural man has not. This makes him, the spiritual man, an enigma to natural man. We're an enigma. What does the natural man know of spiritual things? Because he cannot know spiritual things. He cannot judge spiritual people. And so there's just going to be this sense of we're going to be misunderstood. And that's all right. Well, he says in 16, who has ever understood the mind of the Lord? And who has ever instructed him? And then he makes this really bold assertion. We have the mind of Christ. This doesn't mean we know all of Jesus' thoughts, of course, but it does mean we see things differently than the natural person. We see things in reference to Jesus Christ. And that's why it's sad and foolish for us to esteem worldly wisdom over God's wisdom, as many were doing in Corinth. We have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ that understands all of life is about Jesus. That it's about humility and sacrifice. That we're Christians by God's grace. We have the ability to discern God's wisdom. And the mind of Christ is adopting a Philippians 2 mindset, looking on the interest of others ahead of ourselves. This mind of Christ does not lead us to self-absorption, but it actually frees us from self-absorption. Because that's what the gospel does for us. It frees us from our addiction to ourselves. It makes us others-focused, considering the needs of others ahead of our own. And we so, they so needed this in Corinth because they were so all about dividing each other up and who was the super spiritual among them. And they're all being self-absorbed, and we need it in our day. And this Burger King, have it your way, you rule mentality. The self-absorbed life is captured in this old limerick. There once was a nymph named Narcissus who thought himself very delicious, he stared like a fool at his face in a pool, and his folly today is still with us. We don't have to live with such folly. No, this is the way. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the mind of Christ. We count differently. We think differently because Jesus has changed us. So final reflections before I pray. What are we on about today? The centrality of the cross and the necessity of the Spirit. True spirituality is tied to the cross of Christ. So let's keep Christ central in our lives and as a church. How many churches have drifted and abandoned the gospel? All over Europe, the same is going on in America. One pastor said, I remember visiting a church with a hundred plus year old church building and their slogan was a historic church with a modern message. We don't have a modern message. We have one that reaches back before eternity. We didn't invent it and we can't live without it. We have the unchanging message of the gospel. So regardless of who shows up, we're sticking with the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if we cannot preach the church full with the gospel, then let them stay empty. It's often said that we're one generation away from losing the gospel, just one. And if you assume it, the next generation will neglect it. It has to be the main thing, the big thing. And we need it so desperately in our hearts because at the cross, our pride is broken. Our guilt is expunged. Our love for Christ is kindled. Our character is transformed. Our hope is restored. 
to let us stay humble before this cross. Let us stay happy in the love of God. And let us pursue holiness in this new power that we have. And if you're not a Christian, we're praying you would not reject this message as foolish, insignificant, or irrelevant. But you would see in the cross how bad sin must be, but how loving God must be, and how salvation is a free gift that you cannot earn, but you can receive. The necessity of the Spirit. This text reminds us that apart from the Spirit, we do not have salvation. This should lead us to many responses this morning. One is just humility. The Spirit of God did the work, not us. Jesus paid it all, not us. So let us be humble. As Paul says later in this text, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? <laughs> all through this letter, it's like, stop boasting, will you? Stop boasting. Gratitude. We should never cease to give God praise for his Spirit's work. Unity. Major concern in this divided church. We can be unified because the Spirit of God is within us. I have more in common with another brother or sister of a different age, who live in a different time zone, who enjoy different things, than I do someone who is like me, but not a Christian. I can meet an unbelieving 46-year-old man who likes sports, has a bald head, has decent triceps, and I am more like the former than I am the latter. What unites us is not our affinities, it's not our age, our hairstyle, it's the Spirit of God is in us. Therefore, we're together forever. Now, what we're called to do in the, in the Bible is now maintain this unity in the bond of peace. We didn't create it, but we maintain it. And then finally, this text should lead us to prayer, as I've already mentioned, for those who don't know Jesus, that God would do for them what he did for us. He would open up their eyes to behold the beauty of Jesus and believe. And if you're not a Christian, that's what we long for you to do. Not all have faith, but maybe today God is creating faith in your heart to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. May that happen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Write its truths upon our hearts, we pray. Transform us by it. Jesus, you are the Lord of glory. May we never move on from the message of this cross, the wisdom of God. May we grow in our understanding of it and the implications of it and even now as we prepare our hearts to take the lord's supper we pray that you would increase our gratitude for you that you would deepen our humility before you that you would that we would be able to see afresh our unity that we have in you and may our hearts be directed to the hope that we have in you so work now as we continue in worship as we sing and as we take the table we pray this in jesus good name amen